0: The Brown Pundits Browncast. Hey, everybody, uh, this is Razib with the uh, Brown Pundits Browncast, and I'm here with Shadi Hamid. Who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of several books, not least of which is Islamic Exceptionalism, a book I reviewed a couple of years ago. It's really great. So I'm um, I'm here with Shadi to to talk about a lot of things. Um, well, except for shoe not that, not that, but um, wife made wife made a particular demand about that. Um, so we have an outline, Shadi, and like you know, I want to get to that, but really, um, I'm kind of curious because something happened in the news with Chelsea Clinton being confronted. Um, over the weekend, about you know what climate that she fostered through some comments she made about anti-Semitism to Ilan Omar, and um, I mean it was kind of convoluted. You kind of had to know the backstory in the United States. Um, but I'm kind of curious, like, what is your perception, and what do you think is going to happen with the Democratic Party and um, the discussion around Israel and Palestine and the stances you have to have around it or not have around it, and what the diversity of viewpoints is going to be and the problems it's going to cause.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, Rosie, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, good to be with you. Um, so, okay, I have to be quite honest. I, I only checked the video of the of the activist harassing Chelsea Clinton right before this, because honestly, I had avoided. avoid it. I think I saw some viral trending on Twitter, but it sounded so absurd that I, I just thought to myself, I actually can't deal with this. Um, so I did, but I did look at it um, just now. And um, it's incredibly silly. And um, I honestly don't even know how to make sense of it. And I'd be curious what what this activist slash mindset was. But as far as I can tell, she seemed to be blaming Chelsea Clinton for contributing to the very Islamophobia that in turn led to the New Zealand killings or being a part of the general atmosphere of it of Islamophobia and to kind of link Chelsea Clinton in some way to the killing of 51 worshipers in New Zealand is, you know, I think absurd on its face, but I, but as far as I know, she was referring to Chelsea Clinton's um, criticisms of Congresswoman Ilhan Omer and her comments about, um, it's all about the Benjamins, the, the Israeli lobby, um, you know, whether Americans have dual allegiances, that sort of thing. And Chelsea Clinton came out as being cr- uh, criticized um, Ilhan Omar openly and publicly for her comments. And I guess my position is I don't actually like the way the whole Ilhan Omar debate went on. And I tried to stay out of it because I think it reached various levels of absurdity, um, like a lot of things that are kind of Twitter, uh, Twitter driven. Um, but, um, I think that what Chelsea Clinton said, even if you don't agree with it and you don't think she should have been that critical of Ilhan Omar, what she said is completely legitimate. Reasonable people can disagree on the whole Ilhan Omar debate. And I think that there are people I respect on both sides and a lot of people who are somewhat in between, including myself, I would say, and that's totally, um, so that's that's sort of how I come out, not just on this issue, but on a lot of issues, that um, this is not something I have to agree with or like, but it's certainly legitimate, and to delegitimize what Chelsea Clinton said as being beyond the pale is just silly, and that's why I think a lot of people on Twitter responded in a similar way, like, oh, this is kind of absurd.
0: I mean, I think one of the problems we're having in our Twitter heavily online age is that 280 characters and threading. The structure of comments have to be very simple, very stark, very black and white. And, you know, when you write something out in an essay or as you have in book form, um, it can be much more subtle and textured with multiple layers um, nested in. And you can have multiple different positions and valences and assign different probabilities. None of that's going on. Um, it's whether you're against, if, whether you're an Islamophobe or whether you're an anti-Semite. Pick one and i don't think a lot of people really want to pick one um i i guess the reason i'm asking you this question is i feel like um i i'm not a democrat i'm not on the left so or center left to whatever i feel like um you know this person who was criticizing um chelsea and she's on twitter and she's owning it so i mean good on her to actually own it um which is impressive is that there is a far left contingent especially on campus where I don't really think that they get into reasoned discussions. they might get into screaming matches with other people, other counter-protesters or protesters, you know? And you know, Chelsea is from a, uh, a different world, um, to some extent, I mean, she is, she's part of dynastic politics in the United States. And so you have these two things, I think, that are coming together, uh, like, you know, far left, center, left. You know, that are actually kind of in the Democratic Party now. The far left people used to be outside the party, but now they're in the party. And, you know, their attitudes towards Israel are uh, are very, very um I'm not, extreme is not right, but they're way outside the normal distribution of, say, the typical politician right now. And so you're having like almost like an epistemological battle, like in real time. And I, I you know, obviously with cable TV and with Twitter, um you can't really talk epistemology. You know, you can just talk about who's good and who's bad. And I, I think. I think that's where we're at. And, um, I don't know if we're going to get beyond it. Um, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I, I lead more to the right, but I don't generally agree with the Republicans on Israel. I think it's, uh, like, I, I actually agree with some of Ilhan Omar's sentiments. I don't agree with the way she said it. And I, I'm a little like disturbed by some aspects of it, but in general, I do think, you know, I'm not particularly happy that the Republican party is like, you know, down the line Israel, but I have to say that it, at least it makes it easy <laughs> because, um, what the democrats are going to have to go through in the next generation is going to be awkward and um i don't know i mean good luck to them because i don't think anyone has gained from getting deep into the weeds in the israeli palestinian issue um i think everyone just comes out of it exhausted psychologically and mentally so i don't know what the upside to that is i think part of it is like you know we're seeing signaling within within the party um just like god jockeying and positioning and you know, the issues here are sometimes like almost like secondary, right? They're totemic. And so I think that's what yeah, so, um, we were saying there. Yeah, so I'm like, glad, I'm glad yeah that go you on. You
1: brought up epistemology because I feel like I get in this issue on Twitter quite a lot, and actually just even more broadly, where um, I feel like there are a lot of starting premises that lead to the positions that I have that aren't going to be totally obvious to people who don't know me that well, or who aren't familiar with my work. So I have like, I have a some, and we'll get to some of this later, I think I have a somewhat heterodox worldview that is based on a set of starting assumptions that a lot of other people don't share. So if they're not aware of what those starting assumptions are, they might see a tweet of mine out of context and might have they just don't get it. They just also interpret it in a rather different way. So I think that that leads to a lot of, uh, a lot of charged disagreements because we don't, we don't have a common moral language. We don't, um, even the words we use and what those words are meant to signify, but on a very foundational level, we're starting from very different sets of premises, which I think is good because I'm, uh, I guess what some might call an agonist. I, I believe in kind of agonistic politics, which is a whole different thing on its own, but which but which really, I think emphasizes the idea of democracy as inherently conflictual. I don't believe democracy is about consensus. I certainly don't believe that democracy should produce consensus. I'm suspicious of the idea that the vast majority of people can agree on the good life on fundamental conceptions of morality and theology. So, and I also get confused on Twitter when people are like, Hey, Shadi, you're wrong, or we disagree with you, or why did you say this? And I'm just like, well, why, why do you think you're supposed to agree with me? Why is that the objective of political discussion? So, that's kind of how I approach things. I like it if people disagree with me as long as it's in good faith, which it isn't always. But um, that's why I actually enjoy debating and having discussions with people who don't necessarily my politics. Um, And let's be honest, a lot of the kind of identity politics oriented left is pretty boring from a theoretical and philosophical standpoint. And and we'll talk about like what that boringness consists of, but yeah, and it, but, but so yeah, that's that's one thing I'd say on that. But I, I think th- the other thing on the Ilhan Omar debate is um, I'm I'm sort of in a in a weird position on it in the sense that I look at it not just as an analyst of Middle East politics, but also as an American Muslim. So there's a, a kind of personal element that here we have for the first time in our history. Two uh, Muslim congresswomen. I mean, there there were previously Muslim Congress men. men uh, two of them prior. Um, but you know, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are the two most prominent Muslims right now. Um, and you think you think well, okay. They no one should feel that they're representing an entire community. But there is a kind of reflection. And a lot of Americans are going to see these two figures, and for them, these are the two major figures in American politics right now. And you know, you can't even if we want to, we can't separate the two individuals from their identity. So, in a sense, identity politics is a part of who a part of who we are and how we do politics, even if we don't like it. I've had these conversations with my parents and relatives, and. And other american muslim it's like hey those are our our in quotation marks those are our two congresswomen now so there are so we can't so if you how how do we feel about the fact that these are the people who are in some way representing our community
2: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. yeah and there's only two of them so that's that's an issue um you know i will say um so my uh my, like I've surveyed my like Twitter following and it's a uniform political distribution. So um, there are certain instances I have tweeted out things and I know they're going to be taken opposite ways and it's I'm fine with it. I, I find it amusing because, because it's like too short to actually fill it in. And so some people will take it the opposite way because they don't know what my politics are. And I used to put that I was conservative on my, um on my bio, but the problem is the scientists that follow me thought it was an ironic joke and it just, it started to get ridiculous. And so um, there's one person I know who's the only socially conservative, because I'm not really socially conservative, um, geneticist. And so she is she's Republican and she's conservative. And I was just like, well, you know, I'm conservative, right? And she's like, yeah, I was surprised by that. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah. but I put it in my Twitter handle. And she's like, yeah, I saw that. And then I was like, and like I tweet out some conservative things. Like, yeah, I saw that. I, I didn't really know what to ma- make of it. <laughs> and so I realized, okay, like this conservative geneticist actually could not overwhelm her prior bias that all geneticists are liberal to take in the input and actually understand that i too am conservative so after that i actually removed it from my bio handle just so that people would not be confused so i mean this is like a totally different thing but like i mean you know it's very very um science most scientists today are very on the left um especially the open ones and the vocal ones um, there are more moderates than you would think and there are even some republicans but they keep it on the down low because they don't want to deal with like i mean it's not even like verbal attacks it's mostly just like people talk behind your back you're a weirdo that sort of thing so you know people get like wrong impression in general but um i think that that's interesting and i think twitter actually hi- I, like makes it much more salient what your identity is because there's so little information and so little context clues you look at someone's name you look at someone's profession and so my name says that i'm muslim to a lot of people but you know i think like most i'm well known enough that they know i'm not but um people from indian subcontinent or the arab world uh sometimes they don't get it and so they're a little surprised you know because they'll just like go by the name so i think that's interesting as in a descriptive matter of of the world we live in and so i want to like switch to um descriptions so so shadi you're you're arab american your family's from egypt right all right so like every single brown american like south asian person um and like at least I'm not, I mean, I'm saying at least I'm not from a Hindu background, has to deal with the fact that people think that they're Arab, okay? It's not a big deal. Um, if you're an actor, it's actually quite positive because um, what my personal impression is like, I am actually talking to people, um, a lot of white Americans are shocked that Arabs are not as brown as they perceive them to be. So like, if you're like a white looking Arab actor, you're not going to get that role of the terrorist. It's going to be the brown guy because that is what they think, you know, that person looks like. And so um, I'm wondering, like you as an Arab American, do you get like the other other like identification where they think you're Indian or something?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, So sometimes, you know, you meet people and I, I like to kind of hear what people might guess based on the kind of limited information they have. And sometimes people think I'm from the subcontinent. And, um, I tell them, well, no, I actually, uh, you know, I'm, i Arab. I think I find that a little bit weird that people would think I'm from India or Pakistan because of my name, because no one really has my, or it's quite rare yeah. to have my name in, um, in India or, or, or Pakistan, because my name in, in Urdu or, or Hindi means wedding. And what kind of parents would name their kids wedding? It uh, doesn't mean that in Arabic means something different. But um but yeah, I, I do get that sometimes. Um but yeah I'm cool with it. I don't have anything against uh being plausibly uh from the subcontinent.
0: Yeah, well so I find it interesting though because, you know, from a Western white perspective, like all these people in like, you know, what Christian evangelicals call the twenty forty window, you know, are kind of like this amorphous brownish mass to them. But if you talk to an Iranian um a Persian about Arabs um they're gonna go on for a while and it's gonna be like pretty like you know visceral um and then if you talk to a to a Pakistani about an Indian again it's gonna be pretty visceral so I think it's it's just kind of funny that this whole zone is lumped in together and you know like I don't know I mean I know that the um a CEO of like a major tech company was from Sri Lanka. And, um, during the, he was a, uh, a foreign exchange student or he was like a, he was doing study abroad in high school during the Iran, uh, hostage crisis in 1979. And this guy's from Sri Lanka, right? So he's very Brown looking. Um, and he had to wear a t-shirt that said, I'm not Iranian,
2: <laughs>
1: Okay, yeah,
0: which is like, okay. I mean, no one would think you're Iranian, but I guess in the United States, you know, or like, um, I, what was it? Like my dad during the first Gulf war he went to speak at a church about, um, like, he thought he was going to go speak about Islam because he's Muslim. But they actually just wanted to ask him his opinion on the Iraq invasion. And he was just kind of like, okay, like, I guess I have opinions, but they're not any better than your opinions because I'm not Arab. I'm not from the Middle East. Like, I don't, he doesn't have any secret wisdom. And it's just, it's interesting in the United States, especially like our age, I think, which is a little older. Um, being like, like almost like a like totemic representation of this huge group of people who is like basically a disjoint set in set theory. It's like not East Asian, not black, not white, um, not Latin. Okay, well you got to be like Arab, Iranian, Indian. They're all the same, you know. Like they play the same characters on TV. And then we have this issue. um Have you noticed the whole thing about Aladdin, the new live action film?
1: Oh, there's probably some controversy, about I didn't. Oh yeah, there's gotta be right.
0: Yeah, it's like super weird Um, because uh, – so as you know, the film was – or like the original story was like I think retold by a French guy, and he said he got it from the Middle East. But if he if that's authentic, it's actually an orientalization of a Chinese story. And so it's originally set in China even though it's not very authentic. And so eventually it was progressively more Middle Easternized because it just made more sense. And so by the 1991 um, – or is it 92 Aladdin – cartoon film it was set on the jordan river but there's also a lot of south asian um architectural motifs like yeah. from the taj mahal like you know mughal era stuff and so you have all this like pastiche this all this like mix up and now people are saying well you know why isn't the actress an arab because she's half gujarati half english and like all of these like issues about cultural appropriation and authenticity but the whole story is a mismatch that has like no authentic basis in you know Middle Eastern culture anyways. I mean there's aspects that are taken out of it, but now that because of the 1992 film, um they're trying to make it that way and so now we're having this like ridiculous discussion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so well, one interesting thing is I feel like if we were talking pre-9/11, then my Arab identity would be more in the forefront or even my kind of nas- originally national identity, Egyptian or Egyptian American or whatever. But now na- but I think that post-9/11 we increasingly came to be seen as Muslims or that was the category that we fell under so there's almost a kind of Islamizing of, of ethnicity and culture where our kind of um, our national identities or sub-ethnic groups are less prominent primarily because Islam has has become a, a, a much more predominant issue in the news and so Muslims are more interesting to people than Arabs are although Arabs are still you know relevant and that comes up. I think that's been an interesting change and you see this especially in Europe where it used to be that you would talk about Moroccans or Algerians in, in France or that or Turks in Germany but now increasingly Muslims are talked about at, as this kind of homogeneous mass and then it becomes less important whether you're Turkish, Egyptian, or originally Moroccan. And I think that will continue to be the case. I would say that that's also how I've come to see myself more and more. I don't usually say that I'm Arab American, even though I am, simply because it seems less interesting to other people and it seems less interesting to myself. It's more interesting Mm -hmm. that I'm Muslim. And that actually matters more in part because of the work that I do and the fact that I work specifically on the role of Islam in public life, I suppose. Um, but that, that's that been an interesting shift. I'd also say that, um, you know, to go back a little bit, not just pre 9-11, but if we were talking in the pre-modern era, that's a whole different context where, um, you know, obviously then it wouldn't really matter as much where you were born, because if you were born in in Syria, and that was still part of what was vaguely the Ottoman Empire. Then, um, if you traveled within the Ottoman Empire, the the where you were born mattered less than the than the fact of uh, of you being Muslim. So people were able to um, kind of ease into different identities, um, and that was, I guess, always in theory the idea of Islam that being Muslim would take precedence over your tribe or your locality or whatever it might be. And there are people, if, you Mm -hmm. know, I even think about uh, Rashid Rida, who's an important Islamic thinker in the early late uh, late 19th, early 20th century, who I've written about, he was born in what is today Syria, but no one really thought of him as Syrians and he ended up settling in Egypt and spending much of his life there. So you see this kind of nimbleness that you obviously can't have now because of nation states. And so it does matter more that my parents are from Egypt. That has a meaning that it didn't have 300 years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think these nation state and ethnic identities, um, I, I think we overdo it a little bit, um, the idea that they're like, you know, the product of the enlightenment or recent romanticism and national um National, uh, you know, construction, but there is some reality there. And um, I can tell you, so I have relatives, um, I have cousins who live in England, and um, just a quick ethnographic prior, and like some listeners have known this, most of the Bangladeshis in England are from one area of Bangladesh called Salet, which is actually quite distinct, and they speak a different dialect natively. Um, That's almost unintelligible um, to standard Bengali, right? So my family is not from that area. So, you know, my cousins grew up as outsiders to the Bangladeshi community because they're not Saletis. Okay. also, um, you know, my cousin went to university. He's an atheist, but, you know, he has a Muslim name. His family is Bangladeshi. So everyone just assumed he was Muslim. And so he kind of fell in Um, one of his major social groups were a group of Pakistanis, um, English or British guys. They would say English. And one of the weird things that he told me is, um, you know, they're they're, they're Muslim by identity, but they'll drink. Um, They won't eat usually eat pork, which is okay. I don't know why that is, but that's the thing. They'll drink, but they won't eat pork. Anyway, he was telling me how, because his parents are immigrants, right? Um, Like, you know, my uncle was born in Bangladesh, but a lot of these guys, their grandparents were immigrants. So they're actually um, assimilated into some sort of like British Muslim identity that's quite removed from Pakistan in substantive ways. And so they've de-ethnicized, and this Muslim identity is a way they can retain a distinction, which is real. They socialize with you know other people from their community, other Muslims only. Um, generally, they don't actually socialize too much. Uh, I just know this because my my cousin did, and there was some social ostracism or some discussion about why he did that. In any case, but it's not like they're immigrants. Like they, they their grandparents left Mirpur in northern Pakistan, you know, fifty sixty years ago. Their parents grew up um, in northern Britain. And so like now they're creating this new identity. And I think you're seeing like early forms of this um, in the United States where, you know, I've met Pakistani Americans. They're like, yeah, like, you know, my parents are Punjabi, but I don't really know Urdu too well, but I am Muslim. And so I just I think of myself as more Muslim. And this comes up in South Asian identity politics because, you know, um, Indian Americans are really dominant. And most Indian Americans are very liberal and frankly more secular. And so if you're a secular South Asian Muslim person, you can assimilate to that. OK, but if you're more religious, I think it's a little more difficult because, um, you know, I mean, you have this whole other identity and negotiating that is, um, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't have to deal with it because I'm not religious, you know, but other people, they do and they have to balance. Speaking of which, like, I want to move, move to like how the different Islamic uh, Muslim groups interact with each other. And um, I grew up when I grew up as a kid, um, you know, the mosque that we went to that my family went to was multi ethnic because it had to be because there weren't enough Muslims in upstate New York. You know, where there could be like all the Shia also worship there. It wasn't a big deal. It's like, you know, all the Muslims just went to the same mosque. And one of the interesting things, not interesting. Um, one of the things I noticed is like it was very ethnically segregated when, um, you know, people went to eat outside, uh, uh, you know, and like one of the weird things. I just remember thinking offhand, like um, there were there were there was a fair Turkish community. And I was like, I remember thinking, like, what's up with those white people? Like in terms of like, I was just like, why are the white people here? you know? And then later my, my, my dad or someone was like, Oh, they're Turkish. That's just what they look like. Like it wasn't like a big thing, you know? Um, but so you have like all these different Muslim groups and then you have like within South Asians, like the Bengalis and the Pakistanis that have something in common. And I remember there was one thing that um, in hindsight tells me something I think deep where it was like um, there was an argument at the mosque about what was halal and some Syrians had brought frog legs. Um, At like an Eid, Eid thing. And so like there's all the, and like, I remember like um, the people that were like really funding the mosque were South Asian doctors. Okay. That's one thing. Like most of the people that were working there were Arab, but it was South Asian. And I remember like the, some Pakistanis were just like, that's not halal. That's not halal. And the Syrians are just, I could tell they were just like, why are you telling us what's not halal? And, like, that to me, like, got to got to a point where there was, like, a sense that the Syrians, like, they were not going to listen to these Indians, okay? Like, whether they're Pakistani or not, I think they thought they were Indians, you know? I think there was, like, an ethnic element. And from your perspective as an Arab, like, I mean, like, what do you think about that? Like, what do Arabs say? Like, how do they perceive their ownership of Islam? Because I think, like, a lot of people think Arabs feel like they own it. Like, I mean, it's the language of God is Arabic, right?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, I, unfortunately, there is, a te- there is a tendency within Arab communities to look down at least a little bit, um, look down at um, other communities. So that doesn't even have to just be Indian or Pakistani. It could also apply to um, Indonesians or Malaysians or really anyone who's who's not Arab. I don't want to overstate how big of a problem that is, but it's definitely there, and it's something that you feel in in different contexts. Um, I think that it's a little bit silly. To have those sentiments now, because let's be honest. I mean, the Arab world is a complete and utter failure. Failure, not all of it, but you know, most of it. And I think there's a strong argument to be made that if you look at Muslim majority countries, the fifty plus of them in the world, um, the most the most troubling cases are are often found in the Arab world. And if we look, for example, at Malaysia and Indonesia, I think that. You know, um, citizens of Arab countries should be looking to Indonesia and Malaysia for lessons, and not the other way around. They could learn quite a bit. But even, even quite honestly, they could look to um, countries they may not even be aware are Muslim majority. I mean, Senegal doesn't get a lot of attention, but Senegal, I would say, in any number of ways, is more successful than much of the Arab world. So I, I don't think that. Arabs have a, a whole lot to stand on when they when they look down at other cultures. And, you know, Arabs are also the minority when it comes to the overall Muslim population. So there's that, too. Um, but I, I think this was something there is a kind of uh, Arab sh- sh- uh, chauvinism when it so like you you saw this during the Arab Spring when you know, especially Egypt, because it, Egyptians sometimes see themselves as quite literally the center of the universe. There's even a term in Arabic, umma dunya which I guess translates exactly as um, the mother of the world. So it's not even just non-Arabs, but other Arab countries, any kind of advice that's coming from outside, even advice that is coming from Western democracies. And I remember that Uh, when it came to drafting a new Egyptian constitution, Egyptian judges were very reticent to take on advice from international organizations, NGOs, Western allies, because they're like, we're Egypt. We're Egyptian judges. We're the ones who should be telling you. And of course it's, it's absurd to it's, it's absurd because Egypt, um, you know, has not been a successful country. Well, since it's independence, but, Um, Egyptians haven't controlled Egypt in an effective way since I don't even know when. So, you know, it is, it is unfortunate to see that because it does make it hard to take on new ideas in those moments of, of crisis and opportunity. And I think that did have some effect on the Arab Spring.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do remember, um, I think, uh, someone was saying that the Turks, uh, were very skeptical of aspects of the Arab Spring and, um, I mean, basically, it was just racist, um, their attitude. They were just like, Arabs can't control. You know, and I've read Ottoman histories where um, there was, I think there was a general during the 19th century of Arab background, and he basically had to overcome the fact he was Arab because they were very skeptical that an Arab could lead armies. Like, normally, they just, they appointed Albanians or, you know, Macedonians or something like that. That was, like, you know, who led the armies. And so um, I think that uh, that sort of stuff is just, like, interesting because, you know, with the discussion of, um, you know, I, I mean, I think you've seen me talk about this, although I've noticed this like 10 years ago, is like white supremacy, this idea is like almost metaphysically baked into modern discussions now to the point where it overwhelms all other threads of history, which is most of history. And so like, you know, how other groups relate to each other and how like, you know, Persians view their, their like, you know, ethnic identity versus their religious identity. Like, th- those are all just details. Like, who cares? You know, even though historically they might have been quite important. Um, we just want to relate to like okay like there was some French guy that was in the court at Esfahan in 1600s. That's what's important. I don't know. I mean like I've seen things yeah, like that. I which is great
1: really too. Cool. Like I actually hear white nationalist tropes from Arabs quite a lot of the time. Uh, you know, oddly enough, and literally the only people I've met who have gotten like worked up against birthright citizenship in the U.S. are are Arabs. And maybe some, you know, Muslims more generally. Granted, I don't hang out with white nationalists on a regular basis. If I did, probably I'd hear from them quite a bit more. But there, and let me just, because, and I, whenever I say things like that to people, they're surprised and they're not sure exactly what I'm talking about. But there's one trope, especially from Egyptians in Egypt now who are pro regime and pro, pro CC, the current president. They'll say things like. Oh yeah, we Arabs, we don't deserve democracy and even if we deserved it, we don't know how to do it. It's like we we have to be led by an iron fist and even though this particular iron fist guy is super duper repressive, we, you know, that's kind of what we need. There is this kind of mixture of pride and self-loathing and I hear that like literally all my relatives in Egypt are of this mindset. And oddly enough, they were they were big fans of Trump in part of in part because of this. Um, they're anti they anti democracy. They're, they're pro dictatorship. Um, they like Trump because Trump has Trump has that authoritarian sensibility that, that they can relate to. Um, and and these these are members of the elite. These are sec- so called secular elites. These are people who are. Um, some at least sometimes quite well educated even western educated have lived in the west and i i've found that some of the most intolerant people um even though i might like them or love them as members of members of my broader family some of the most intolerant people are those who have the most western education which again is like an interesting kind of conundrum which might seem um, not obvious to other people why that might be the case, but I think it 's worth bringing these things up because it challenges i think these facile notions that oh, if people just get more education that 's going to lead to more tolerance or pluralism, or the more people secularize, the more tolerant they 've become and here I think I can make a stronger statement that in in many of the countries that I study in the Middle East, the most unpluralistic people have tended to be of the secular the quote unquote secular persuasion because some of them aren't actual secularists but the people we would associate with with secularism or secular ideas have a lot of trouble with basic basic notions of pluralism which again would seem probably a little bit a little bit weird to the american or western observer
0: yeah <laughs> although did you see their Did you see the recent survey? And like, there are some statistical issues with the sampling. So I mean, but the Atlantic had an article about intolerance towards the other side, and it showed that people on the left, um, like twenty percent of them, said it would be okay if their like ideological opponents just all died, and people on the right, it was fifteen percent. So um, which side is more secular? Wait, so you're I'm just saying
1: twenty percent and fifteen percent.
0: Well, it was like. Um, it was like I, the statistic was twenty percent of people on the left agreed that it would be good yeah, if you. basically the other side just all died, and for, on the right it was fifteen. Yeah, and the ones on
1: the left are presumably more secular. So you're saying that supports my point.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of experience. Like basically, like the overwhelming majority of my my friends are secular liberals, just because I'm in the world of science, right? Um, and and I I will say like some of the most um open-minded, tolerant people I've met are actually religious. They're usually liberal, but um, because there's a lot of contempt, just, and the contempt is not even, um, it is not something that's a big deal. It's just taken for granted that you're a bit contemptuous of religion in a lot of academic science, to be frank. Um, It's not like a major critique because it's not an issue that comes up, you know? I mean, Almost nobody, very few people are religious. And so, you know, when you're, say, a Christian, um, usually it's a Christian, but not always. Usually it's when you're a Christian in that environment, you just take for, um, as, like, you know, for granted that your views are going to be criticized all the time. And so you're actually just, you have a thick skin about it and you just accept it. But I think that also internalizes a way where you don't try to do the same thing to other people because you know what it's like. That's, that's, yeah. that's my... So look, um,
2: in, in my se-
1: experience, I, I think that um, secular, seculars in America... Uh, it may not have been the case before, but I think at at the current snapshot of time that we're, that we're in now, I, I'm more and more convinced that secularism is associated with intolerance. And I've noticed precisely the same things that you mentioned. Granted, because I live in a major city, I think for reasons that you, you just alluded to, if you're a conservative, you have to be a little bit more pluralistic to live in a majority democratic or majority liberal city like the one that I live in. I also grew I was born and raised um outside of Philadelphia, also pretty liberal. So I think conservatives um you know develop in a different way when they're in those contexts. But I do think that the, the new secular dogma that we're seeing now which is much more ambitious in how it wants to change society and here I'm not talking about economic issues because I'm actually I'm actually more on the left. Economic side of the spectrum, and even kind of left populist. Um, but um, I'm I'm more concerned about the identity politics side of it, which I think is very maximalist and brooks no dissent. And that, to me, is 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 quite is quite an intolerant strain of the of of the modern secular mindset. And one thing that I've been writing about, and actually I'm working on a new project that gets into this a little bit more which is that if to be secular um, or even really to be non-religious, and those aren't the, the same things necessarily, if you're not religious, then your ultimate point of loyalty generally has to be of this world, right? And that could be a nation. It could be a charismatic leader. It could be scientism, science or whatever it might be. And those are things that require a kind of definitive answer in the here and now, because you can't defer judgment until the next life. These are things that are very much this worldly, where I think one thing that religion holds out potential for is this idea of not just really suspending judgment, but postponing judgment. Because if you believe that the world is, and this is a kind of Christian perspective, um, and I've I've been learning more about this perspective as of late, you know, if if the world is broken by sin, and if you can't achieve any kind of uh, true perfection until the return of Christ, then naturally that can help you accommodate imperfection and uncertainty in this life. And you might still think, and I don't like this, but you might still think that people who don't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior could spend an eternity in hellfire, but you could at least say, well, hey, that's only going to come later, and I'm not going to concern myself with that now, and God will judge those people when the time comes. That, in a kind of counterintuitive way, can be more conducive to pluralism than someone who says, the nation is everything, or someone who says, my ethnicity is everything, because that has to be resolved now. Um and I think that that comes again. It comes as a surprise when I say things like this to more secular audiences because the idea to them that religious ideas could inspire a more pluralistic way of approaching difference, that seems so far and quite honestly like growing up in a secular context, that's never something that I heard growing up. And I'm I'm only so but I think there is something there. And I, you know, I I think the polling is Mm -hmm. mixed and I think I'll have to look at this, this, uh, this survey that you just mentioned, but, um, I'm increasingly thinking that there's something there.
0: Yeah. I mean, so one thing that I would say my personal experience is, you know, as, as I said, um, I'm an atheist, although like, you know, you know, raised in a Muslim family, but most of the people that I knew growing up were Christian and I, I was raised in a very conservative, um, you know, Christian area so I knew I I knew something about religion um, just from like reading like you know there's something about my personality like to be frank like I don't think I've ever really believed in God so that's just not me but um, when I talk about religion and its role in history to um, and these are often graduate educated people uh, secular liberals they actually like have no idea what I'm talking about because they don't read history so you know I made an allusion offhand on Twitter to the axial age and you know implied from that is the moral ethical transformation and the rise of universalism but actually it was totally misunderstood and people just assumed i was bringing up religion to show how um you know it's the root of all evil which okay that wasn't what i was trying to say i was trying to say the opposite you know but they have like no reference and i actually had to go in and i you know i have to say educate people and explain like oh you know well the whole thesis here from carl jaspers which you know, to me, it's frustrating that that we need to be educated on that. But I mean, I think I think that's where we are um, in terms of people get into their bubbles and they read their particular things. And you know, um, it is important to be exposed. I mean, I like I like reading things. I mean, I'm generally exposed to things that are opposite to me, partly because I follow mostly liberals, because I follow yeah. mostly scientists. You know, and that's fine. Um, you know, I'm. It, whatever. You have to have some intellectual humility. I think that's what we're lacking in general, and I think this is a trans ideological thing. Although I think because the cultural ascendancy of the left today, um, I think it's more salient to us of how the filter bubbles are happening there because of the control of the communication, the medium. I mean, there is a whole MAGA Twitter, but most people, I promise don't interact with it. Like the network topologies have shown that pretty clearly. Like even like elite conservatives tend to interact yeah. more with the with the mainstream, more left media. Um, So I guess, like, you just, like, said some skeptical things about identity politics and and economics, and, like, I mean, this is on our outline, like, let's let's just get to it, like, I mean, like, are you still, like, a liberal? Are you on the left? Are you a Democrat? Like, how? Like, I mean, what I have seen in the last, like, 10 years is, frankly, a radicalization on the left when it comes to identity politics in a very, very, um, I mean, it's very, I mean, I'm going to use the word performative, because, um, you know, the way I explained it on a previous podcast is, like, I don't really give a crap about all this stuff of multiculturalism. Like I was raised in an immigrant household in a very like liberal white area. I am multiculturalism. I introduce diversity every single day, you know? So it's like, for me, I don't need to like talk about it all the time. Like that's my life. You know, I'm an atheist. I'm a conservative. I'm a Brown dude. Like okay. find another one like me, you know? So um, I, for me, like I, I get bored by it, but I understand like if you grew up in uh, Atherton with only like really well off whites and Asians, and then you went to Wesleyan blah, 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 you need to like, you know, make a big show. That's, that's my personal, I mean, to me, it reminds me a lot of the Christians I grew up with that would talk about like, you know, Christ-like life and, you know, how they want to glorify Jesus and all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, I know you're smoking out on the weekends, like, you know, whatever. Um, But so I think a lot of it is symbolic, but symbols are important, you know? And so I guess like, I mean, like, how do you see yourself right now? Because I I feel like you're definitely, um, I mean, you're an oddball here. I mean, it must be weird.
1: Uh, Oddball is certainly one way of putting it. Um, so, you know, I get this, I get this on Twitter quite a bit, where people don't really know where to put me on the spectrum. I mean, I do talk about what, like my my ideological and and partisan premises. I mean, the, I do see myself as of the left, and even in the left. Um, I am very critical of center leftism and technocratic cent- centrism to to use that kind of formulation is is something that I rail against quite a bit and that's what sometimes gets people a bit confused because I am pretty much criticizing a center left a vapid technocratic consensus and sometimes people on the right do that so they're like wait is he doing this from the left from the right whatever that said I think that People on the left um, are, can be suspicious of me sometimes because re- I take religion seriously and I think religion is important, even if we, regardless of whether or not we believe it, I think I think it plays an important social role. And I'm skeptical of attempts to privatize religion because I think they can often backfire and undermine social cohesion. Um, and that's not a super popular perspective, um, on anywhere in the left, I would say, except maybe on the Catholic left, which isn't a very mainstream scene. Although, although.
0: Are you just talking about, you're just talking about Liz Brunig.
1: It it could be reduced to one person. (laughs) I I mean, it is broader, but she's probably the most, uh, prominent Catholic leftist now in, in the kind of like American commentary scene. But, um. And I think also my foreign policy positions are are of their of their own category as well. I've generally been pretty hawkish. Um, I I have been, and I think it would be fair if someone wanted to describe me as an interventionist. I know that oftentimes people mean that pejoratively. I don't mean it pejoratively, and I'm and I'm not someone who believes in intervention all the time or even most of the time. But I do think that there are times when when American military intervention is justified, and I've been kind of specific about what I think those circumstances are, and they include um, contexts of, of sustained mass slaughter, um, genocide, and that's not a popular position now, really anywhere. Um, so, so because I and because I kind of fall on different parts of the various axes, I think that leads to some confusion, but. I would say that um, I would also say that I'm pretty sympathetic to what to what is called left populism. And it's something that I've tried to play my own role in in helping to develop from my own perspective. Um, And I I wrote a long essay in in, in, um, uh, American Affairs, which is itself a pretty heterodox, heterodox journal about what a, a new left populism might look like on questions of identity and immigration. Um, so and I, I have to say, too, the probably the, the candidates that I'm most excited about right now in the Democratic race are uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and also uh, Peter Buttigieg, even though he's not really um, a, a left populist. Um, I like him for other reasons. Um, so and I would say, too, like for people who want me to kind of or think that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me to, to be in or stay in the Democratic Party. You know one answer that I've given in the past is that I even though I don't like tribalism because I understand that tribalism is natural to us as human beings I fall into tribalism as well my tribe are pretty much democrats those are the people I spend time with um those are my friends for the most part um I live in a majority democratic city as I said um but also I think importantly the Democratic Party is the one party out of the two that is willing to defend. And here I'm. I'm uh, I guess I'm falling into the very trap I criticized earlier of identity politics. That they are the one party that defends "quote unquote" my community, and by this I mean Muslims. And because I've, you know, uh, I don't. Yeah. I don't necessarily like that. That's the way that I look at it, but we are in a moment where muslims are are having to deal with islamophobia they're even sometimes under physical attack as we've seen and i want to be part of a party that respects who if 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 being muslim is part of who i am it's not all of what i am it's not even necessarily my primary identity but it's part of who i am and i can't be part of a party or a movement and by this i mean the conservative movement that does not respect who I am. So even if theoretically I had different economic positions than the ones I currently had, and even if I felt like my policy positions um, mesh more with conservatives, hypothetically, even then I couldn't be a conservative for that very simple reason.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, we, people can, I think people can walk and chew gum at the same time because operationally in the real world, you do need to pick a ch- pick a side, especially if you're a policy intellectual. And yet, um, you know, your views can diverge. I think maybe where you diverge from others is you let your heterodox flag, you know, freak fly <laughs> in public. A lot of people have privately a lot of views that diverge from whatever their tribe is, but they keep that on the down low or low key and they don't emphasize it, you know? Um, so for example, in the 2000s, Matt Iglesias um, was pretty open about the fact that he didn't talk much about gun control because he was off the res on that. Um, He might not be now, but he didn't at the time. And, you know, it wasn't that like, it wasn't like a big issue for him, but he wasn't going to talk about it because he disagreed. And so he was just going to talk about what what united him with his party. Um, You know, Thomas Chatterton Williams, I did a a podcast with him, and he was surprised that I identified as as a conservative, you know, whatever that means. He couldn't tell from my Twitter feed um but um you know i just told him it's like i you know who's on the other side from me like who's against me i'm on the other side that's just you know the republican party today is the white christian party um more like maybe christian themed i do think there's been a huge sea change over the last generation cuz let's be honest trump is um yeah. a marginal christian at best even though he identifies like he has like kind of the cultural identification, but dude, the guy does not know anything about religion. Um, the two last two presidents we've had are among the most secular probably since I don't know the nineteenth century. Um, even though religion yeah. is still part of our of our cultural landscape, so I, I I do think that you do have to situate yourself in that context. I guess my question about you know, look, I I've been um. And then I ended up finishing, but I have this piece that I, that I pitched. I'm not going to say where, but you know, it's like center, center right. But about identity politics, I think to some extent, I do agree with people like Ezra Klein that say all pi- politics is identity politics, but different identities are different. So you were talking about religion. I mean, a lot of these um, religions like Islam and Christianity and Buddhism, uh, even Hinduism, like these religions um, and Confucianism quite explicitly emerge as an ex- – as an explicit ethical way to organize society and bind people together and create common moral currency. I think a lot of secular liberals in particular don't realize this because they don't know very serious religious people, you know? Um, and so like, you know, we have this situation where that's happening now, an identity of a racial identity. Um, you know, I was telling a, a friend of mine who is, uh, you know, he's, he's Latin American, but, um, anyway, he's more on the right privately, he's a scientist, so you can't, you know, but, um, I don't like the fact that people on the left are saying race matters. Um, As a racial minority in the United States, I don't want white people to think of that. Um, I don't want white people to start thinking about their whiteness. That's just not a good trend, in my opinion, in the long term. Um, Because ultimately, I think racial minorities and just in general societies that are multiracial benefit from not emphasizing. I mean, the reality is race does matter. But if you're starting to organize society on that basis, the thing the difference between race and religion is race is something to some extent you're born with. Yes, you could do the Rachel Dollar's all, but you know, it's different. So I, I you know, I think when it comes to identity politics, the religious identity politics, that's real, but you can convert to a religion and you know, religion is a bundle of ideas. I a mean, race is something um it's more primal and atavistic. And I think I think that's dangerous. And uh that, that's basically my my general position.
1: So yeah I, I agree. Yeah, so I I think well first of all on um on Ezra Klein's comment that all politics is identity politics. Um you know, I I think human beings don't really and there's some, you know, interesting empirical research on this in terms of voting patterns and what why people vote. Very much fewer people than we might think vote on policy. And even when people tell me that they vote on policy, I'm generally suspicious. Um, because like, take the last election, for example, Trump versus uh, Hillary. Um, I don't know a single person on the planet who kind of like in a very um, calculated, calm way, took the policy proposals of each respective kind and were like, oh, I like that policy from Hillary. Oh, I kind of like that policy from Trump, but not the other one. And then came to a conclusion in some very deliberative way. Literally, no one votes that way. Um, So, you know, and maybe there might have been more of that in the past, although I think that even then we can question how prevalent that was. We vote for oftentimes quite instinctual reasons. When it comes to racial identity versus religious identity, I I think you're right that... um, the more we emphasize minority identities, the more whites are going uh, are going to be conscious of their own white identity. And now, I know that a lot of people poo poo this on Twitter and like, oh, there the you know there they go again, kind of equating you know different identities, even though whiteness is not really a thing. But the point is, identities are manufactured and they can change, and people can feel more conscious of things. That they didn't feel previously, right? So um anytime you're injecting race into a public debate, other people are going to be affected by that and they're gonna respond in like. Now, this doesn't mean they should respond that way. So I get it when people say, well, oh, that's bad that more white people are responding in this particular way. But from a purely from a purely empirical standpoint, we know that more whites are responding. This way, and there's even been some interesting, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, priming research, and some of this is in the book "Democracy for Realists," which is an excellent book, where if you if you prime white voters by essentially warning telling them that they're going to cease to be a majority in America by a certain date, they're more likely to vote Republican, because you're you're triggering something in them that they may not even realize but is is it's there in the gut and people are going to respond to the fear of no longer being a majority even if they themselves don't want to feel that way because mm-hmm. we are human beings so um and we you know we are who we're not and that's also inevitable um and this is why i think the populist idea is such an important one because populism recognizes that there has to be there has to be an opponent. Now, one reason that I'm supportive of left populist ideas because if you take my premise that we need an enemy, I would rather that enemy be economic oligarchs and corporations rather than ethnic minorities. So, if that's if we got to choose between one of them and there's always going to be a kind of populist constituency going forward, let's do a better kind of populism that picks the, the right enemies, or at least the less bad enemies, if you will. Um, and um, I think that once you start looking at politics that way, and obviously there's Schmitt, Schmittian undertones here, friend-enemy distinctions. And I wish that human beings weren't this way. But again, empirically, we know throughout most of human history that um, people people need something to define themselves against.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, isn't it what Ronald Reagan said? The way you can have like world peace and everyone united is if there was an alien invasion, which I think, Oh. I mean, that's, fun. that's, I like that. Yeah. I mean, he said it in the 1980s, I mean, I think it's like totally true. I mean, isn't that the, uh, isn't that like something underlying? Um, what was it, Watchman The Watchmen series. So I mean, I and you, you see this in general. So I guess like you know, like you know, we should like close out soon. I want to ask you about Egypt again because um, there is like on our list of topics. Um, I wanna I wanna ask you about cops and like your perception of their role in Egypt today and how how cops and Muslims interact in public and private, um, you know, in terms of just like you know, as Egyptians of different religions.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. Well this kind of touches on some of the identity politics issues as well and I think we see this with the Trump administration really emphasizing Christian rights and Christian persecution in the Middle East which I think is fine in theory but when you really make it into well oh we're just focused on Christian persecution and you make that the primary lens you fall again into a tr- identity politics trap because the way that I see it um it's not just Christians who suffer from persecution and discrimination in Egypt. They do in their own particular way that has to do with church construction and, and um, hiring practices in, in certain parts of the bureaucracy and the army and things like that. But also um, Muslims, as well as Christians, as well as all Egyptians suffer from the right, for, suffer from not having the right to vote in meaningful elections. All Egyptians, whether they're Christian or Muslim, suffer from not having the right to join NGOs and not having the right to protest, not having the right to do all the things that we, as I think, Americans take for granted when it comes to civic life and to think that Christians only care about Christian issues but don't care about basic rights that all humans, I think, to some extent... Kind of want people want to vote for their representatives, all other things being equal. I think that right. Maybe they don't always um, think that in times of crisis or when they feel under attack. But hey, that's it's better to have some say in who you elect. So uh, you know, I think that that's where we've lost our way in saying that oh, Christians have rights, Muslims have different rights, and Shias have rights. But what about um, this other minority community? And also, you know, we should. You know, Arab dictators know what Western audiences like to hear. So they emphasize that, oh, you know, we take care of minorities. And if there were free and fair elections, the bad Islamists would come to power and then they would repress minorities. And we fall into this, fall into this rhetoric. And I think that we as Americans have to be very careful not to take at face value what dictators are telling us when it comes to minority rights, um, because their incentives are certainly not pure in this in this regard. They're trying to justify authoritarianism, and we should recognize that. So that's my that's my general approach to that question.
0: And so how do um how do uh, how do Muslim and Coptic Egyptians I mean do they interact socially? Is it a class thing? Um, You know, I mean, how many so there's also controversy, how many cops there are like, do you have any opinions on that? I mean, like, why is there even a controversy? Don't they do a religious census?
1: So I don't we there are there is a debate about what the numbers are. I don't try to get into that. And I'm not sure it really. So the numbers that I hear usually are somewhere five to 10%. I mean, 10% is the one that people generally use. I'm not sure that the specific numbers make make a huge difference. It is a significant minority. It's an uh, an important minority, but in Egypt, even the use of the word minority is controversial. Um, So there's just like a lot of politics around it. And um, I don't think people know how to talk about these things in an effective way. And let's be honest, in in an authoritarian context, People don't know how to talk about anything in the right way because the, the public debate is always going to be distorted when you don't have freedom of speech and freedom of expression because people are people, essentially live their lives learning how to suppress their opinions and being careful what they say or don't say among their fellow citizens. And um, I think that's not a great way to grow up. It's not a great way to live. I think it has a lasting effect on on people. Um, you know, thank God that my parents um, you know, came my mom came to the US at a relatively young age. I think she was around 24. Um, my dad moved to Canada, I think he was probably around 32 or 31 or something like that. So they were still able to like, you know, have some of their formative years when they were figuring out like what they believed about things. In a context where there was true freedom, and you know, I'm very thankful that they were able to do that. I think that if you took my same, if you will, genetic disposition, and I I was born and raised in Egypt, I'd be a very different person, and probably not for the best. So um, I'm I'm someone who feels very strongly about how authoritarianism distorts the human spirit in ways that are are very dangerous. Now. What it, how, how cops and Muslims actually interact on a daily basis, it's been tense for a long time. I mean, in certain parts of Egypt, it's become more tense since the Arab Spring because the Arab Spring brought out a lot of issues to the fore. But then there was a military coup against um, a democratically elected government that was seen as more pro-Muslim and anti-Christian. And people can debate to what extent those characterizations are accurate. Um, certainly it was an Islamist, um, an Islamist led government that didn't have a great record when it came to Christians and was seen as prioritizing, um, one religion over the other. And almost by definition, Islamists do prioritize one religion over the other. Um, so, you know, some of that, some of those criticisms were legitimate, but the point is that the Arab spring brought those issues out. and um the fact that the the military coup in 2013 happened and and one of one of the justifications that supporters of Abdel Fattah sisi the guy who uh, the architect of the coup they they justified it in part saying that um oh our military leader or Sisi will be more accepting of all egyptians regardless of their religion he will he won't prioritize conservative muslims or religious muslims over others and he's the one who has a broader sense of egyptian national identity so you heard those kinds of justifications and because people did use those justifications it it kind of introduced a sectarian element on both sides and you had Muslim Brotherhood supporters were using sectarian language, but also opponents of the Muslim Brotherhood were using what may have sounded like nationalist rhetoric, but was in its own way sectarian rhetoric. So that's where we are in Egypt, and I think it will take a long time to find a way to live with deep difference. And I think ultimately, in all of my work, I'm I'm fundamentally concerned with this overarching question is how do we accommodate deep difference because I'm not someone who believes that we can ever be the same or that we should be the same. And I take foundational differences as a given in any pluralistic society. So for me, the question is never how to reduce our differences so as to reach more consensus. My goal is to say, well, we're never going to resolve our differences and we shouldn't because we believe in fundamentally different things. And then then the question from a policy standpoint becomes different. Then the question is, how do we accommodate those deep differences peacefully within the democratic process with a respect for each other's differences, right?
0: Yeah, so you know, I wanted to like end with Egypt, but like I gotta come yeah, back please. to the United States. Yeah. What you're talking about, because, because uh, um, you know, you're talking about authoritarianism. This is like nineteen eighty four type stuff where like top down. And I know of other people who are from you know, and like, you watch what you say, and there's a whole private world or private life that's kind of not part of the public. And there you can have the freedom, right? Um, one thing that I'm worried about, and I've observed, and like I, I wonder what you think, is like I feel like over the last ten years, last fifteen years, um, you know, people have become much more worried about what they're saying and who they talk to and all these things and this is more like um you know fahrenheit 451 type stuff where it's bottom up like these social media mob type things you know and it's it's not necessarily in one particular ideology but right now like you know the post tumblr world basically like let's let's be honest that's what i'm worried about right now what i'm wondering so for example there are religious conservatives or just religious moderates who worry that um their whole like beliefs are just going to be problematic and they have to you know hide or like you know create separate you know the whole rod Dreher thing um you know create a separate community and i mean i don't think that's really crazy from some of the stuff that i've seen i mean i understand these people online are marginal but there were a lot of things that were marginal 10 years ago that are now you know in the democratic party you know like peter i think it was peter Binard he wrote this article about secularism and how it's just you know it's not necessarily cool always to be religious which is like weird for someone i think of our age where you know, even if Democrats were privately secular, they would publicly do the whole like you know song and dance about God bless you. Now that's 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 kind of up for debate, and that's introducing a whole new element where being religious is, you know, a particular religions is ipso facto evidence of uh problem problematic. You know, and I, I wonder what you think about that.
1: Um. Yeah. So this is actually one thing I'm really concerned about that people don't say what they think, or there's there's this kind of desire or not even desire but people feel they need to suppress um unpopular opinions because if they say something on Twitter everyone will jump on them and it'll go viral and god knows what's going to happen after that i've found and my my situation is is somewhat unique because you know i do say controversial things and i'm not as i'm not as worried about that i honestly think that one of the reasons i can do that is because i'm a person of color and I'm a Muslim. And, you know, in the hierarchy of or the totem pole of oppression, um, I am, you know, Muslims are pretty high up there now. And we're one of the major groups that um, people are concerned about. And I kind of I kind of like that people are worried about us. But I'm, I also have to acknowledge that that does give me a certain degree of freedom to say things, especially when it comes to things that have to do with people of color, other minorities in America. If I was a white person, and you know, I'm not gonna say that like obviously I don't think whites are oppressed or anything, but you know, if you're if you're a white person, I think it would be advisable to be some at least a little bit careful. I wish that people didn't have to feel that way and feel like they oh my god, like what if I say this? What if I say that? Can I be open about this? Am I saying the right, what's the red line here and all that? But um, I think that um, that is something that, uh, especially in kind of left circles, where people are more conscious of identity politics and cultural appropriation, white people simply have to be more conscious of that. Um, I, I don't think, um, do I think it's healthy that people aren't saying like crazy shit about minorities? Yeah, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about things where people aren't really sure and they're well-intentioned, but maybe they get it a little bit wrong. Or things which, quite frankly, no one should have a big problem with, which is um, various aspects of cultural appropriation. Maybe some, like blackface we can all agree on, is unacceptable. But there are some forms of so-called cultural appropriation which, honestly, no one should be debating. So if you are a white author, but you want to have a character in your young adult novel who is not white and is a person of color... That should not be a controversy and that's kind of crazy that it is right so um that's one thing Uh, you know on the question of whether religious conservatives are going to start feeling and they actually as you mentioned like the um you know uh, writers like rod Dreher write about write about this a lot that they feel that there's increasingly not a place for them in the public debate and that this trend line will only continue so On that, I I am sympathetic in the sense that I think there is, especially in popular culture, a demonization, not really of religious conservatives, because I don't think there's a demonization yet of Muslim conservatives in America or of Orthodox Jews. I do think there is some level of stigmatization or whatever you want to call it, of Christian conservatives. if you're a conservative Muslim, then at least you know you're still, a, generally speaking, a person of color, or you're a minority. So you got something going for you, right? But um, if you're just like a straight out Christian white male conservative, then people kind of are gonna look at you know. So I get that. That said, I think there's a danger of overstating it. I mean, um. Christian conservatives are still free to criticize what they see as um, an increasingly suffocating, and aggressive, and expansionist liberal culture. So, for example, take take the book by Patrick Deneen, uh, "Why Liberalism Failed," which I think has you know has a lot of strong arguments in there, and I think everyone should kind of contend with those arguments, which is really a kind of a full throated critique of the liberal status quo, and here I'm not talking about American liberalism, but kind of what what liberalism more as an ideology has become over time and what it's morphed into, not just in America, but more broadly. And I think that um, those um, those criticisms I sympathize with, and I sort of see myself as a liberal critic of liberalism. In some ways, but at the end of the day, liberalism still gives you, um, still gives us a lot of freedom to criticize the liberal paradigm. And there's not a lot, lot of other um, systems of thought or ideology that allow its own critics to speak so freely against it
0: so I guess I guess one thing that i'm I'm observing right now is it seems like on the left there's a decline of liberalism yeah. on the modern like public. Yeah, well, left.
1: Say, say, a little, say, say a little bit more about that and how how you see it.
0: So you know, um, like someone like Jonathan Chait, um, he has strong opinions about conservatives, but he doesn't think conservative views should be deplatformed. okay? There are people who are on the left who think that, Conservative views ipso facto should not be given any, you know, purchase. And, you know, on the right, there has been a non-liberal element around for a long time. Um, and you know, those people would be like, you know, in the nineteen eighties, for example, they would think that anyone who supports gay rights should be deplatformed. So there's yeah. there's similar. It's basically the idea that pernicious views should not be given any oxygen. And, you know, like a, a down the line liberal, the Nadine Strauss and ACLU type is like, that's a feature, it's not a bug. Like your tolerance of speech is shown not through by tolerance yeah. of stuff that's uh, easy to defend, you know. It's tolerance of stuff that's hard to defend, and that was why the ACLU defended the Nazis um, marching in Skokie. Uh, it shows you what the ACLU believes in the you know worst case or like reductio ad absurdum. Today, I think yeah. we're seeing a difference. The ACLU has already had internal arguments about this uh, around 2010, 2009. There were some people that left partly because um this actually had to, my understanding of it had to do with um the the cartoons in Denmark and that like there was an older faction within it that wanted to take a really strong stand in defense of free speech and then there was a younger faction that for various honestly identity politics reasons they didn't want to be seen supporting yeah. that sort of insensitive behavior towards muslims and so you know the latter camp actually won within the ACLU and the ACLU has been moving a little bit more towards intersectionalism um, of late, as opposed to just focusing on speech civil civil liberties, which was their you know traditional yeah, thing. Yeah. So
1: I, I think I'm really concerned about this. So, th- um, there how how should I put this? There's growing intolerance for the tolerance of intolerance, <laughs> which is another okay. In other words, um, I think that there has to be some level of tolerance for intolerance among the people that we don't like or think have problematic ideas and i think that if we're coming from a more expansive classical liberal tradition that is very deferential uh towards freedom of speech and freedom of expression we should generally err on the side of more freedom of expression in that regard um but i think it goes beyond that because I, um and i think what we're seeing you know especially um well, I think we're going to have a lot of debates about this um, in light of the New, the new Zealand um, uh, shooting uh, where white nationalism is, is a big part of that story, obviously. I worry about demonizing the entire like kind of right, right wing spectrum of politics and that all of these people are basically because they're anti-immigrant, they're racist and because they're racist. They're basically white nationalists, even if they're kind of softer white nationalists. But I think that on the on the left, uh, on the left now, there is a lot of in to- um, intolerance of what we consider to be intolerant ideas. But then, then obviously that becomes hard to sustain. Be- and this is sort of it gets to what um, I think Stanley Fish called um, liberalism's inherent contradiction: that because liberalism does inevitably see some ideas as beyond the pale, and we might disagree where the red line is, but there is a kind of a tendency to cast at least some people out of respectable, polite society, but that undermines the liberal idea in some way. So you end up being in this con- continuously paradoxical situation where you don't exactly know where the red lines are or where they should be. And I think that I'm very much informed in my views on this from my time uh, living in the Middle East and, and studying the Middle East, that I've seen how dangerous it can be to cast out certain groups that win elections. So let's say you have a group that does very well in elections. They're relatively popular in electoral terms, but they have views that are considered non-liberal or retrograde or religiously fundamentalist. And here I have in mind um Islamist movements and parties, um, many of whom are have were or some still are quite successful in the in a democratic context. But then people would say, well, they don't believe in liberal ideas or they don't <laughs> believe in secularism. So we have to get rid of them by any means necessary. And because I saw what happens when people start to have those ideas, And then I see echoes of that in our own context where it's like, you know, honestly, if there was, God forbid, um, some kind of military coup against some Trump-like government or even a, a Trumpist government or even this government, maybe liberals wouldn't be thrilled about it. But there would definitely be a bunch of people who, like, deep down would be like, hey, maybe this isn't the worst thing in the world. And that scares me. And there's even like less of, you know, it doesn't even have to be through a military coup, like even the idea of finding a legal pretext to impeach someone, look, if there ends up being a legitimate reason to impeach Trump, if certain things are uncovered that haven't yet been uncovered, then we can have that debate. But there's a lot of people who want to impeach Trump, irrespective of the evidence that we may or may not find. That to me is maybe like a softer version of that, but also still a very troubling one. And the basic idea here is that a white nationalist, to the extent that we want to consider Trump a white nationalist, white nationalists should not be allowed to hold executive power, even if they win elections. That is basically, I think, maybe not a majority position among Democrats, but is one that is gaining ground. And I think that if you asked it in those terms, a lot of people would be sympathetic. Um, That to me is a scary sign.
2: I just wanted to interrupt here and ask a question. Um, to, uh, I'm glad you touched on the tragic events in New Zealand. And I, I'm speaking uh, observationally uh, from the Pakistani community, which is you know, very generous and being quite mad. But I noticed that there's a bit of a, uh, even though there's a, a general mourning, there's almost a, a euphoria among Pakistani Muslims in a way that now Muslims have finally beca- achieved victim status and therefore this is the result of sort of talking about Islam and the corollary in a way is that oh let's just stop talking about Islam in a way and let's cease conversation there because you know New Zealand happened and that's the result and I've I've kind of felt this very acutely that New Zealand is seen as the result of Islamophobia and legitimate criticisms of Islam is now kind of being subsumed in a way because you know how can you really talk about Islam because it needs to white nationalists shooting up a mosque.
1: I, I'm I'm noticing some version of this um, on the Twitters and all that in the sense that um people are I think are drawing conclusions from New Zealand that I'm not sure are entirely appropriate where they're kind of um, saying like, oh well they're 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 expanding the definition of Islamophobia to include a lot of things which may or may not necessarily be Islamophobia, and saying that all of this is part of the same spectrum, and all of it leads to violence, and we have to be so vigilant that even people who renounce violence and participate peacefully in, um, in political life, if they have any views that, that kind of overlap with white nationalists, then that's just another step towards violence. And anyone who contributes to Islamophobia, um, however we want to define that, has blood on their ha- hands, and you know that sort of thing. I w- I worry about that because it reminds me of the very unnuanced way we talked about Islamic extremism, where um, we wanted to lump a lot of groups together, and I think a lot of people wanted to lump all Islamist groups together and say Islamism has to be fought because Islamism ultimately leads to violence and if we thought it was bad then i think we should and and th- we should also think that it could potentially be bad in in fighting white nationalism i believe white nationalism needs to be fought we have to be more vigilant than we have been but i do get nervous when people are calling for what sounds to me like a heavy-handed securitized approach to a pretty large group of people including right-wing populist parties, which don't support violence. And we might not like them. They might have kind of kind of really problematic ideas. And some of them do engage in anti-Muslim bigotry, quite obviously. But even to kind of lump in, to, to lump those groups in with someone who killed 51 people, that's also, there's a big difference there in terms of how people perceive the legitimacy of the use of violence that's that's also one thing that we should differentiate just as we did with um pretty far right islamist salafi types and and I would always say okay um some people share this salafi ideology which we might find very problematic from an idea standpoint but there are non-violent salafis and there are violent salafis and that's That's maybe not the most important distinction that people want to talk about but it is a distinction if we want to be analytical we we should bring that same level of care um Mm -hmm. now the parallel isn't isn't exact and you know sometimes we can overstretch the analogy between um islamic extremism and white nationalism but i think that some some care is required here yeah
0: i i do have to say i I, sometimes i see an analogy to what happened in the 2000s after 9-11 um, where you know I would talk about Islamic extremists or Islamism in a, a very you know and look I'm not like a, like you know Chadi like I'm not a big fan of Islam I'm not a big fan of religion okay like straight up that's just how I am but I would I would I would talk about it in a very objective way and people would get mad because yeah. they're evil um, whatever they were and I was just like. Look, I can have opinions, but like, you need to detach yourself and analyze this. You can't be like seething, you know, and um, like even describing um, the beliefs um, set people off like they were like foaming at the mouth, like in the comment threads and I would have to ban people. And I'm just like, I'm obviously not an Islamic radical. Now, I did have some people accuse me of being an Islamic radical and that I was deep undercover and. It was super. <laughs> I've had some really weird conspiracy theorists about what I am and who I am, but um. Anyway, so that happened, and then recently I was accused of being an anti-Muslim racist by a um, an asshole professor who I know.
2: like,
0: <laughs> He's an asshole, but he's a white guy. But whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, and I was like, "Dude, like, I talk to my Muslim parents probably like every weekend, and like, I'm pretty sure you don't know that many Muslims personally." But you know, he felt comfortable saying that because I was saying something about you know Muslims in Britain, which I have some personal experience about because my cousins. Anyway, I don't want to get into it. Like the whole discussion of like the overemotionalization. Um, I think it's a big change that I've seen. On the other hand, it is kind of always the same. There's always like talking about communism in an objective bloodless way in the 1970s or 80s might be have gotten you in trouble you know but you're an analyst you're an intellectual i do think there's one difference where if you're talking about on the popular level i think i think i understand what where that's coming from what i'm worried about is even intellectuals are starting to become careful and cautious about platforming or Um, You know, the platforming, that's just a symptom. The bigger issue is like you're not even going to analyze ideas and movements in an objective way because you might give, um, you know, you might give um, support to a group you oppose. And so I feel like um, with Islam and the left right now, there is an allyship and intersectionality that's going on, which which produces weird bedfellows. So one of the things that we've talked about in this podcast that I'm very fascinated by is the fact that Hindu nationalists are now being accused of being white supremacists. Um, which like okay like that seems like absurd but in the logic of allyship it actually like the math works out and you know it, there are white nationalists who allied themselves with Hindu nationalists now most of the Hindu nationalists actually don't know enough about these people to have an opinion but you know from the west perspective the only thing you see is a bunch of nazis surrounded by brown people so those brown people must really be white supremacists you know it's a like contagion
1: well, look, I do think that there, there is one common thread between Hindu nationalists and, and white nationalists in the sense that they both kind of don't like Muslims. I mean, I think that this is one common thread that we're seeing among right wing populist parties in different regions, cultures. Um, they're different in a lot of different ways. Even within Europe, you see quite a lot of diversity between these parties, but they all seem to share a preoccupation with Islam. And I think it's interesting that we do see some similar anti-Muslim rhetoric coming from uh, the BJP, Hindu nationalists, uh, more generally. But on, on the broader point about platforming, um, so I think that Sam Harris is an important, is an interesting example of this because um, I, I went on this podcast some time ago and we had like a three hour, it's like a long podcast.
0: If- that showed some courage going on his podcast because, like, people are going to be, like, you know. Yeah.
1: Well, that was also, I think that if I if I went on his podcast today, the response would be stronger. That was still, I think, before the deplatforming stuff became, like, really, really uh, mainstream. Um, but, like, my philosophy on this is, like, I'm pretty, I'll pretty much join a panel with anyone or join some kind of debate with anyone as long as, as long as I, as long as I think that they're gonna, they're gonna engage in it in at least some, some degree of good faith. Now, if I know anyone ahead of time wants to get me on a program just to attack me or to like put, put me in a corner or whatever it might be, then, you know, there's no reason for me to do that. Right. But, you know, um, I had no reason to think that Sam would, um, would approach me in a negative way, and you know, even we we do disagree, uh, you know, uh, quite profoundly on certain issues, and I think some of that came out um, in the podcast. But again, I don't really have a problem with that as long as, long as, you know, and in this case, Sam Harris did give me he wanted to hear what I had to say on any number of issues. We had a back and forth, and hey, that was the discussion. People can come to their own conclusions and the fact that there isn't a nearly as much tolerance for that kind of debate right now, um, where people are, as far as I can tell, are trying to deplatform platform Sam Harris. You know, I don't think that's really the right approach. And I think that Sam Harris is also interesting because it gets to this bigger question of how, how much do we want to extend the Islamophobic beyond the pale category? Right. And I think that it's possible for it's not necessarily the most common thing, but I think it's possible for someone to be anti-Islam, but not necessarily anti-Muslim. And I know that gets into some tricky territory, but I think that one reason one reason that, that Sam Harris is a little bit different, he, Sam Harris is a hardcore secularist. And I think that if you're a hardcore secularist and you feel very strongly about that, and that is your animating concern, I can understand why you would pay a little at least a little bit more attention to islam than christianity because let's be honest um islam plays more of a role in public life now and in even even islam plays more of a role in public life in western democracies in, in in european democracies where the level of church attendance among quote unquote christians is like microscopic in some cases and the only time people see outward expressions of religiosity is with Islam. Now I disagree with Sam Harris's conclusions about how to accommodate those differences in religious observance, but I get it if you're a like for 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 um for arch secularists, the question of Islam is going to be a more sensitive one and one they're going to focus on more. Can we just say that oh? they're just bigots, they're just racist, and they have to be deplatformed, and no one should ever engage in debate with with them. I mean, um, and honestly, if we had that approach, then pretty much the entirety of the French secular elite, which is actually almost the entirety of the French elite, and these are people who buy into a very assertive secularism that does limit uh, the rights of Muslims, um, you know, in terms of like, even wearing the headscarf, where there are legal prohibitions on that. And you know this is something we have to engage with, and we have to um, you, you have to talk to people who you might think are otherwise beyond the pale and I think that um, the people who are actually beyond the pale in in a democracy should be as small as possible. We should never try to increase the number of people who are deplorables so I'm willing to say, hey, Richard Spencer, white nat- like full-on white nationalist, deplorable, but actually most of the people who I think are accused of being deplorable should not be put in that category. And we should also be very uncomfortable with adding people to that category.
0: Yeah. That's why you're weird. Or at least you're no, I mean, cause like, it seems like, you know, like these, these, and like, you know, on the right, there is something similar with like Israel. I feel like, you know, the, the, the faintest whiff of a uh, anti-Israel um, positioning, makes you into an anti-Semite and I think that's it's, it's a problem um I, I don't agree with that but I mean it's just the social norm there and um you know that's where we're at I just, I just feel that it's changing and I think partly because maybe we're a little too online um it's changing but like, I mean you live in DC I mean like you're a DC you know think tank guy I mean do you think it's also changing in IRL or is it just on Twitter yeah, I mean, I,
1: I don't think it's just Twitter, because um I know people like to say sometimes that Twitter is in real life. Fine. But Twitter is where norms are policed, and especially norms among elites. And norms are generally a concern of elites, you know, more broadly. So if you have a lot of journalists and politicians and whatever you want to call it, influencers or thought people or whatever then that matters even if it doesn't necessarily reflect what's happening i don't know in like somewhere in wisconsin um, so i don't i don't like this idea oh well twitter is just like a different universe because it's a universe that matters so even if it's not completely real it be, it has real real effects now putting that aside in terms of like the conversations i have with people in actual actual real life there is no doubt to me that this is this is real and I don't like it when people um, kind of dismiss it as like a figment of our imagination. It's something that I see in conversations that I am part of um, in different contexts. I travel in different parts of the country. I give talks to different people. I participate in debates. And I see I see evidence of it in a way that I wouldn't have um, before. Now, we can disagree empirically on how widespread it is, but it's definitely more than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So I don't, I think it's very hard, hard to argue, to argue with that. And, you know, I think the way that we combat it and, you know, I'm not to get all activisty because, you know, I'm generally my role, I guess, is more to analyze than to actually like, you know, there's only so much we, we pontificators uh, on podcasts can do to actually change things. But ultimately one reason that I do what I do is because I think that ideas can lead to change. And if there are more people like us that challenge these predominant paradigms. And honestly, I think that as a person of color, okay, it doesn't sound weird. As a person of color, I think that I have a special responsibility to fight some of this stuff more because so much of it is being fought in my name and no one asks for my permission. And people think I'm okay with it. They think I want it. They think it's good for me and my quote unquote people or my community. And I've just had enough of, quite frankly, like you know, white liberals policing what people of even what people of color can say. That if we're not open enough, they're telling us yeah. that we're old enough. Are you are you freaking kidding me?
0: I, no, no, this is no, this is very current year though. There's a, a you know the Chappelle show. Have you ever watched the Chappelle show? Yes, yeah. There was a Chappelle show sketch, and I have to find a YouTube where he's just complaining about how white people are saying things are like racist. And he's just like, I don't, he, cause like some white guy comes up to him. He's like, Dave, you can't say that that's racist. And he's just like, wait, but I was talking about black people and I'm black. He's like, yeah, that's racist. You can't say that. And like Chappelle's like, what the hell? You know? And it was like a big, funny laugh line then. Yeah. I don't think it's a laugh line now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think Chappelle is great on this stuff. Even in in, in some of his stand-up, where he, he but I, you know, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's so absurd to me and I think it's also, it's disrespectful to be quite honest. It's patronizing. Maybe if people are being well-intentioned, they don't realize what they're saying at first, but people who really insist on certain kinds of narratives and kind of promote them on Twitter, and then it's like, whoa! You're basically weaponizing me as a minority group and speaking on my behalf and assuming what my preferences are to make a point that I don't share and think is contrary to what I believe. And I, you know, honestly, like, so, look, if I can, if I can punk, do do whatever I can, uh, through the people who you know what listen to what I'm saying or reading reading what I write to puncture some of that and challenge that. And if if more of us do it, honestly, that's the only way we can really push back effectively. I know a lot of people are engaged in this work, you know, groups like the Heterodox Academy that that feel quite passionately about this. There are people who feel like, hey, enough is enough. This is untenable. It's unsustainable. And it's getting completely out of hand. Um, And I think if more of us are aware of how, how the rest of us feel, then it kind of solves a collective action dilemma. And that's why I think that even if people don't think they're particularly influential or their voice can actually matter that much in this debate, it matters because it's one way to get past the collective action dilemma that always, I think, undermines group activity. Because we're like, are there really that many of us out there? But there are. I know privately, so many people say they agree and they share some of these concerns, but they're like, hey, Shadi, honestly, I'm a white male. I can't say this. I'm refer yeah. to you on this and yes. like yes. that's real i hear that i hear that me too quite a bit to be quite up to be honest yeah.
0: about it yeah yeah so i mean we yeah. need to close up I, you know i don't want to like take you too much but i do want to like you know just reiterate what you're saying because like i've had a lot of the same experiences and you know what i have a real problem with now is um your identity determines whether you're going to win or not win or not win an argument and your standing is so overwhelming that basically there's no point in having a discussion there's no point in analyzing there's no point in looking at the evidence if you're a white male you come with such a huge handicap in certain contexts that um you're just not going to speak and so i can tell you um, in academia. You know, there are certain discussions where, you know, I'm like, I'm the total edgelord, so I have to, like, speak, you know, (laughs) um, for a lot of people. But, I mean, part of it is just also, like, a lot of white males that keep their mouth shut because they got grants to write. They got careers. They got, you know, they have, like, labs to fund. They don't want to get involved. And so this, like, really, really loud vocal minority um, is dictating the the, the terms of the debate and the the future of, like, the long-term, you know— Path of academia, even though the majority of people are kind of skeptical, but um, there's not enough people. I mean, you know, the distribution is from like the center to the far left, and the people further towards the center are more risk averse for various reasons, and there's more reasonable people in general. So I I definitely think that this is a huge problem. I I you know like um I don't know how you, do you know you know Zay Jalani, yeah yeah like I'm I'm really liking some of the stuff that he's putting out there, um with his new podcast. Um, uh, you know I think it's like called Totally Offline or something. And, um you know I guess you're right like it's got to be us because if you're a white male you're just gonna be attacked as uh you know whatever like you have to figure out you got to figure out your victim card angle you know like if you're a white male like maybe you were raised super poor and I don't know you, you have a disability I don't know that's one way you can do it you know as a brown guy like you know I'm I, like I've said it a little too much controversial stuff like I've been like whiteified so I think I've lost some of that but you know um, it, it it uh it, it definitely helps and so um, you know I have, I have hope, mashallah, you know, but um, I'm also like, you know, you got to prepare for the worst. And I think a lot of us are just wondering if the liberal moment is over and I hope it's not, but um, you know, if we can like continue and like have open discussions, I mean, this is, this is, um, this is the air we breathe, right. As intellectuals, like, you know, I don't know if you think of yourself that way, but it's the air you breathe, like exploring ideas, whether they're ideas you believe in or accept or find plausible. Like, you know, I read theology just because I'm curious you know, yeah. like, people ask me, like, why are you reading, you know, this stuff? And I'm like, why not? That's what I say, you know? And so um, I think like that's, that's kind of, like, the way I live my life. And I wish more people would. I, I don't expect everyone to do it. But I feel like if you're an intellectual, like, why are you in this game? If you're not in the game to challenge yourself and, like, see different things and just, like, look through the eyes of, like, you know, as Greeks would say, a barbarian. Like, imagine, like, what if you were the barbarian? Like, that's part of, part of, like what we're all about and like being in other people's shoes. And um, I feel like we're getting away from that, which is ironic because is um, being driven by secular people who would think that they're very open-minded and they're not subject to dogma.
1: But they are. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They and so, I mean,
1: I would also say that um, we wish more people could, could engage in debate this way. I would actually say something else that it's a better way to live your life. It liberates, It liberates you in a sense when um when you when you go into a debate and your goal isn't to convince the other person, like hey, if it happens, I think if people are persuaded by what I say, that's a byproduct of me doing my job well. But but honestly, I'm just as happy if I come out of a debate and we're like, hey, Shadi, I understand your perspective more. I still don't like it and disagree with it. But let's hang out again. Let's let's discuss. And to kind of approach debate that way, it removes a lot of tension. It makes life more exciting and interesting. It helps you to meet new people you otherwise wouldn't meet. Um, and you know as someone who's been doing more uh, debates and discussions in different parts of the country with Christian evangelicals, some of whom are are quite a bit more conservative than than I am. Like I think it, I think can be like a really beautiful, refreshing thing if you, if you, if you will um, open your heart to it. Um, and so I, I, part of me doesn't like. I think that if more people uh, tried it, more people would like it. But the social pressures are 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 very much misaligned in this regard. That there are a lot of incentive structures that are pushing people in the opposite direction when it comes to people who don't say much at all. I mean, I live in D.C. There are a bunch of people here who are quite careerist. And since I've never really had a goal to like join a campaign or, you know, you know, I don't mind, I wouldn't mind. And if there's a right fit, I'm happy to do it. And I'm happy to serve my country and government, again, if there's a right fit, but because that's not what I'm agitating for and I'm not like building up to that. Um, that also helps as well. I think it's unfortunate that there is, There is a revolving door of boring centrism sometimes where people don't want to say something new or interesting or even question what might be the so-called elite consensus because they're thinking about, um, you know, which administration they can join. And maybe from their standpoint, yes, they probably do have to be a little bit more careful and they're just doing what any normal rational person would do if they want to serve in government. I just think it's unfortunate that we don't reward, um, bold thinking. And I'm happy to see that now in the democratic party, there's a number of candidates who I think are going to be more willing to reward, uh, bold, unusual thinking. And, you know, I meant, I mentioned a couple of candidates who I think are, are more attuned to that earlier, earlier in the podcast, but I think quite a few of the candidates and not, not just those three are, are, um, are potentially more open to going beyond like the standard campaign manager, the standard foreign policy hand who's been there forever and was like Clinton's person and all that. And, um, so that gives me a little bit of hope and that's why like I'm generally like, look, I don't want to expand the Overton window completely, but I think generally the, um, the the window of where we were engaging for many years was quite limited and quite narrow and quite um and quite police and i think you know in some parts of the left it's getting more police but i would say more broadly because you have people um people like trump he he didn't intend to do this well maybe he did but one of the positive byproducts of trump is that he because trump says such crazy things that are terrible if you say something that is not terrible but just like vaguely radical like someone like <laughs> someone like AOC comes in or Bernie Sanders like no one's going to be like super angry at them because nothing they say is going to be as terrible as what Trump said so in some sense that window is of is is growing and it's allowing people to put forward ideas which i think are helpful to have in the public debate
0: yeah yeah i definitely you know, it, it depends on what dimension you're looking at. I feel like my foreign policy, I'm, I'm definitely like less interventionist than you. And um, I feel like, you know, some of these far left Democrats are actually shifting the debate in a way that I favor when it yeah. comes to that, um, as opposed to like the Bush era where it was like more interventionist or just mildly interventionist. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I mean, there's some definite upsides. And, um, you know, I do think, like optimistically, like you know, it depends on like what we're evaluating. Like I, I think, like I've been expressing a lot of pessimism about intellectual life in the United States. I do think globalization and the internationalization of the world, that at least introduces diversity in different nations, even if within nations there's more homogeneity. So that's the one, um, you know, upside that I'm thinking of globalization. Although I do think economically, um, you know, I'm not part of the Yang Gang, but I do think there's some serious issues with globalization and. Uh, um that our country needs to tackle and and i I do think that centrist establishment is having a problem wrapping its mind around it partly because of self-interest you know they've been doing okay all right um so i guess it's been a great conversation and we talked about a lot of different things um i'll definitely like see you online and you know um yeah and so um i'll talk to you later shoddy
2: tune in next week for brown cast